Welcome to the Adoptee Thoughts Podcast. I am your host, Melissa Guida Richards, an author, adoptee, and mom. Each week, we will delve into the nuances of adoption, as well as tips for how to bring up difficult discussions in your adoptive family. And most importantly, we will not shy away from tough topics. So thanks for joining me today, and let's jump into your weekly dose of Adoptee Thoughts. My name is Kylie Peterson. And you're a transracial adoptee, correct? Yes, I am. Uh, And what is your parents' race versus yours? Uh, My parents are white, and I am a black woman. Uh, What age did you find out that you were adopted? Do you you remember your parents telling you, or...? Um... I would say that, like, initially I knew um, probably by age two, just because the stark difference in our coloring, um, that that was something that I picked out early. Um, but even looking back of just some of our baby books, they, they looked like me or they had families that looked like me. And so that was something that I was aware that I looked different or was different from my family, at least. Did your parents talk to you about race growing up? Was that something you were comfortable? Yes and no. So I guess to explain it like the the easy way, I think we started with like why our skin um, is different and kind of the, the different race and how it played into just like even how they grew up versus how I was growing up um, and just different kind of events that happened throughout it. Um, I can remember, I think I was five and we took a trip to um, to Memphis, um, and we actually rode on like a they call them like freedom rides through the city where they go through all the historical stops. But part of that was um, as you're riding or you're listening to Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream speech, and so that's when it kind of like opened the dialogue that um, we should be talking about race. But I think as I've gotten older and as I've gotten and I would say I kind of had my racial awakening um, in high school in um, high school and college mm-hmm. is where our conversations really became less cookie cutter of just like racism is wrong and this is what happened back then. And how does that now look in like the everyday incidents, um, kind of the microaggressions, the the things that are underlying and really like the systemic um, um, issues Mm -hmm. versus just like, well, someone didn't burn a cross in our yard, you know? Um, And I think that has shifted kind of our conversations and our relationship as well. Um, But because we had like a basis of kind of, I would say my parents had a basic understanding. um, But I think as I've asked more questions and, and, brought on my own learnings that we've been able to create kind of better conversations and deeper to really kind of uproot some of the things that even that even are present in our own family um which is is something I think that yeah um I think as a transracial adoptee we always kind of have that education hat on of like we're teaching you about how to treat me but also like being that bridge of like, well, I didn't grow up in a black family, but because I grew up in a white family, like I'm understanding of why your feelings until so you hold a lot of their white feelings, their white tears, the fragility. Um, and that's hard. That's taxing on, on yourself. And I think that's something as I've gotten now into my thirties, that it's even with family, you have to set those boundaries uh, and understand that mm-hmm. as much as you have a relationship with them, that for yourself, especially for your racial identity, there's pieces of you that um, they're never going to understand because of the difference, if that makes sense. Yeah, I can totally relate. Uh, having conversations with my parents about race in general is uh, is very difficult. Um, my parents, they didn't grow up in the, in the States, and they grew up in, like, really tiny, excluded towns in Italy and Portugal. So they really didn't, they weren't exposed to a diverse community until they came here. And even growing up, they, they pretty 
they kept their ties close knit. So it was mostly in a white neighborhood. Um, did you grow up in a diverse area or was your area primarily white? Uh, yeah, it was predominantly white. Um, we had a lot of diverse friends and black families that we were able to with even within our own network that my my parents were friends with and their kids were the same age and so that that definitely helped but then in relation of just my parents were they they knew that (laughs) they knew the term racial mirrors but they didn't know how to do it but they did it without without like all of the definitions and the things that we use now and so I think it's interesting just to kind of like how they were like oh like um like I remember, I think it was my eighth birthday, and we went to the the Harlem um, Black Ballet Company was in town, and like my 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 mom intentionally like took me and was super excited and like had all these these readings and things on on them beforehand. But it was just like there was things like that that like as I look back at it, I'm like oh like that that's a key part of like that I can that I can go back into how I was developing my Mm -hmm. racial identity of like events and people and like our best, one of my mom's best friends that lived across the street was kind of the first person that introduced me with to all Mm -hmm. things black hair. And I can like, I can remember having a hot comb on the stove and like getting my ear burned as she's trying (laughs) to do my edges. And that, that's something that like sticks in my mind of just like all the different layers of like, but like she was continuously like in my face and just like, saying and speaking mm-hmm. black beauty but it's like at that time my mom saw that as a friendship that she had with um her name was eula with her um and that oh like this is a great connection for for my daughter as well but she didn't it wasn't like oh i need to have this woman because of my daughter it was no i have a relationship with her and because i have a relationship it also is bringing both families together so she was very supportive of you having a relationship with her Mm-hmm. I know some adoptive parents, they can at times feel a little threatened, um, especially with like, I don't know if you would refer to her as like a mentor, kind of. Uh, do you feel like both your parents were pretty supportive of relationships with other uh, like black adults and peers and everything? Yeah, I think I think they were. And I think they also saw it as their places like they didn't need to be the buffer in between it. Like, um mm-hmm if I felt the need to have a conversation separately with them, it wasn't like, well, what did you talk about? Or how did you talk about it? And I think I've been essentially kind of blessed in that, in that piece that I didn't feel like my parents were always kind of not setting it up, but like essentially like, yeah, setting it up. Um, which is yeah. like, it's, it, which is not always the norm. Um, it's something that I appreciate, but I also know that like there are times where like I didn't, seek out black mentors or or people in the community to kind of sort through because I just I didn't feel comfortable or I didn't feel like I think we all kind of go through that like imposter feeling where it's like you don't feel enough to be able to really like Mm -hmm. have concrete conversations about like your identity and to ask questions because you're like well I don't like some of the typical things or the stereotypical things and you want to break down some of those stereotypes um, but not in a way where you feel like, am I just like, like I'm not, sh- not shame, but, um, what am I trying to say? It almost felt like asking the question, it was a dumb question mm. because it was, yeah, like, like you should have known it. Yeah. Like there's like certain like cultural norms or things that like, I didn't know because that's mm-hmm. not how I was raised. And I think that's something um, that I think I struggled with, especially like in my teams, because I just I was so unaware of like what I didn't know or like and what is also like expected of like, oh, like you're expected to know these these cultural norms or expected to know like this certain language. And that was something that I was like, I don't know this. Like, do I actually fit? Do I not fit? But I do because like our skin is the same tone. Um, and that, and I think that like, it goes back to just like feeling that kind of, that kind of people pleaser mentality of just like, okay, I, I need to learn and study and like, you almost study your own race and yeah, to be able to just, to essentially pass, um, 
instead of feeling fully welcomed. And I think that was something that like, you can't talk to, to your parents about that. Like you, you would start having those conversations and it's like, well, you're loved and like, you're blessed and like, you know, you're wonderful how you are and all of those conversations, which it's, you know, you hear that, you know, that's that, that undone, like those things are always going to be true. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also like that, that fear is that when you get in a space with all people that look like you, that you just are not, you're going to do something wrong or you're going to present yourself in a way that isn't accepted. And I think that's something that my parents didn't prepare me for. And I think that's something that adoptive parents can't prepare you for because they're never in that space where they feel like an imposter to their own race. Mm -hmm. Just what pops into my head is when I first joined like uh, uh, Latinos Unidos in college, and it was my first ever time being like in a room with all other uh, Latino and Hispanic people and I just felt like the biggest imposter because like most people there were speaking Spanish first of all so I I didn't speak Spanish at all at that time and then um, people they just see me so they would come up to me and speak in Spanish and then I'd have to be like hey I'm sorry I don't speak that and then I'd be stuck with that choice where do I tell them I'm adopted or do I just like make up an excuse and not get into that because I was so embarrassed not to know that part of my culture. Right. So um, do you do you feel like you've learned a lot more about your culture now as an adult um, and you feel a little more comfortable in your shoes and maybe you find, do you find yourself like code switching around like your family members versus your friends and the people close to you now? Yeah, I think... So I think really as an adult, I think I've really taken it on. But I think one of my work experience really fully like immersed me in a um, within the black community. Um, and I really felt just fully kind of immersed and like accepted, really kind of spoke to those like insecurities, but also just like the diverseness within my own race, which was really exciting for me to see and to be a part of. Um, and I think that is something that like I've been challenging myself in the spaces to really kind of like essentially kind of harness my code switch switching so that I'm not constantly in this like back and forth kind of place of like this is how I'm with my my white family and the and the people that associate with them versus this is with like my community that looks like me and that's mm-hmm. really been a step out I think more recently because especially because of um George Floyd's murder and just I was pretty silent on it um but having some of just those inner conversations with close friends um and being able to just be present in that it just really spoke to just for my own identity is being boldly who I am um and not feeling that like Mm -hmm. I need to shrink myself to fit who my family's thinks that I am versus who I truly am um and it also is like, if you can't accept me, then why are we even having this conversation? Um, and I think that's that's kind of where I've kind of rested on that. But yeah, I think it's 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 still growing and evolving. And I think I still like like always we always have those moments where it comes back or like something triggers another thing um, that you start questioning. But I think firmly it's it's been I've been able to just be like boldly, I'm a black woman. Um, and mm-hmm. and like and I'm owning the space that it is and if it's making family uncomfortable and discomfort like I'm saying speak on it like I don't we don't need to tiptoe around it we don't need to to just kind of create this space of like well I didn't know what to say or I didn't want to say anything to upset you like I'm like no like I'm more open to because we are family to having that space but if there is something that like does not fit or like feels toxic then I'm taking a pause and it's like I don't even need to entertain that I don't need to waste my time to really like invest into that um and that's telling have you been able to discuss black lives matter and all the systemic racism and the protests and everything with your with your family like has there been a, a conversation that you guys are keeping you know, tabs on together? Are they supporting you with that? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, so I have an eight-year-old son 
And so that really kind of changes even the conversation for me because it's just um, not only am I seeing it within myself and my community, but I'm seeing it even more so for the reality of my son. And I think that's, that's at the forefront, but I did have to, like, I did set my own self up. I did, I did not, because I know like everyone's like, oh, like, you know, you put, put a whole message out of just like, this is, I stand with this and I did, do like this. And like, at the moment I had no words because it was so, it's like, we all know that, that systemic racism and, um, and white supremacy is currently, it is what our country is built on and it is woven into all of our systems and just how we function. But it was so close to home. It was so like, I'm from Minnesota. So, I mean, like, I know where 38th is. I know the street. I know where Cup Foods. I know the area. I know, um, not fam like I I call most of my friends family, but a lot of my friends and family mm-hmm. live in that area, um, and so it was, it was a very it was a hard week. It was a hard emotional week. I mean, it still is, um, and I mean my my family initially didn't know what to say, didn't know how to come for me, didn't know how to to respond or to if they needed to respond, and that that in itself kind of spoke its own volumes because it's like in any sort of situation if something is happening to to anyone else like you're gonna have some sort of response right and so it just so that kind of like distance and then also like navigating my own feelings and also raising my child and like and having to really acknowledge his feelings in that in that circumstance and really kind of for me I had to take on that just like person of just like I need to protect my child and he needs to know that he feels safe and that he understands um what's going on and how that relates to him. Um, and so like balancing all of that was, was just, it was overwhelming. And I think it, it took a toll on my parents to just see how emotionally drained um, I was. And so th- and th- that's how the first conversations happened. Cause I, we were, for some reason we were like, we were in two different places. And so I had sent a call or sent a text message to my mom and said, um, like, have you seen what happened? This is on Monday. I want to say Monday night. Yeah. Um, and that's when everything just kind of like went up. And so my mom was kind of the first person we kind of initially had a conversation. Um, but she still was just like, I'm just, I'm just trying to understand everything. And then like my dad was just like, I can't believe this. But he also was just like, I, I want to say I can't believe this, but I also like, it's not a surprise. And that is something that like, that spoke huge to me because it's like, okay, you are paying attention because you're saying this, like, it's not an anomaly. It's not something out of the blue. Like this can happen. I mean, it, and it has. And so I think that's, but this was, this felt different than Castillo, um, mm-hmm. Philando. And, and I think that's what we all were kind of unaware of just like what it just kind of took not took it up a notch, but it just, it changed kind of just how we thought about and, and think about justice within even our own state. And so, so there was a lot going on. There was a lot of outwardly things. There was a lot of, even within my own family, like folks started to share things. We're just like, are you okay? This was later in the week once the riot started and, and looting, which that, that's where the conversation got really not dicey, I guess it got, mm-hmm. it got interesting. And so and I openly expressed it. And I said, you know, because it was so easy for everyone just to, to go towards like, we need unity. We need peace. This is not right. They're destroying businesses. And, and these are even businesses that are black owned and, and POC owned. And like, why would they do that? Why would they like tarnish his name? And I had to, I had to fully just like exit mm-hmm. a lot of those conversations because I was my, I was angry. Like I was like, but in comparison to even like, we've got sports teams where you see riots that that are just flaming up cars and it's just, Mm -hmm. it's child's play. And this is, this is like a man was murdered and we had officers not arrested for that murder. And that, that was a bigger, the bigger call of action for me. And so for me, it was like continuously having that conversation, which gets tiring, you know, it gets tiring to go back and forth and be like, this is what it's about. This is, this leads to all of this. And even within the looting and the riots and all of that, I said, y'all started noticing when 
that became the highlight. And, and that in itself is where we're having problems that we can protest silently. We can be peaceful. We can do every other thing. But when, when, when you see police cars burning, when you see the city literally burning is when now it's an issue. And then, and that, that was something that was like, it was hard wrestling with it because it was like every time I had something, it felt like a family member would be trying to come with a rebuttal or, well, did you see that this and this led to this? And then it gets into mm-hmm. like politics. And I'm not, I would say I'm not a political person. And for like this, for me, and I just said it, it goes back to humanity and it goes back to the inhumanness that black people feel on a regular in this country and that y'all don't see it. And and yeah, and, and so I had to take some time just to be away and silent and like to not <laughs> go back and forth because it just, it didn't productive. seem like the space that I needed. It, yes, productive. And it didn't seem like it was like, again, and I had to go back to, I said, you're, you're taking my experience and what I'm feeling and you're dismissing it to provide research or facts or statistics that which essentially were irrelevant based off of our own population whatever. Like, I was like, I'm like, you can't, let's not do this with me. Cause I will go, like, I can go back and forth with the numbers. That's yeah. just how my brain works. So I, I was like, if you want to go there, I, I can go fact for fact, but I'm not going to, mm-hmm. because that's exhausting. And you should just believe me first instead of, instead of questioning it. And I think that that's what I think is what I struggle with the most with my family was just mm-hmm. the questioning. But then it's like, I'm listening and it's like, we would get one part, but then add another layer. And it's like, but I don't get that part. And then I'm like, okay, do I go in full education mode? Because that's part of the work that I do um, is around equity work. And so it was just like, I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm always teaching. Um, but then it's, all, and then it's also this like privileged space where it's like, well, do you even feel like you're a teacher because you are adopted? And, and that's something that you got to reckon silent yourself as well is that your experience is still valid to your identity of who you are um and I think that's it that's mm-hmm. huge yeah definitely and I can't imagine the emotional bandwidth that you've had to supply to have these conversations with your family I know when I just tried to talk to my parents like my dad's a diehard Republican so he like he just takes Mm -hmm. what he sees on the news and like that's it like there could be facts statistics study after study video evidence but if like the news and Trump say the sky is green he's just gonna be like no the sky is green so like I I for any adoptees listening, I hope you understand that it's okay to take that time to yourself to, to recharge a bit because it, it can get really emotional and draining and uh, for us as adoptees trying to combat like racism and microaggressions in our own families. So I really like the approach you took, Kylie, with your family and, and how mm-hmm. you you have those conversations with your family, but also value your time and your mental energy and your mental health. Because like, of course that has to come first, especially as a black woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I echo all of that. You say that, that I think it comes a time where, because we have that. I'm see, well, I'm speaking about a lot of adoptees. I'm speaking for myself is that you want, it's almost like you don't want to feel not accepted by your own family. And so you always want to kind of pacify your state of emotions, especially when there's Mm -hmm. things that are conflicting. And, and like, like you said, with your dad being a Republican and just like politics, it's, it's messy (laughs) with family, (laughs) to to say the least. Um, but I think there's, there's a value in just being able, and I think I've come to terms with just like, there's some, there's areas where I'm going to fully disagree with, with my parents mm-hmm. and with my family. And I think at a time, like probably earlier, I probably would have been like freaked out and was like, no, like I like, but that's not true. It was like, I should not hold in my own feelings of what I'm thinking of how I'm feeling with that, especially when it is tied to my culture tied to my community um because they're not going to experience that 
And that's the thing is for all the guys listening, like your parents will not experience your race through you. They won't. There is no connection. There's no possible way that they're going to feel all of what you're feeling when it comes to your race, because they're not your race. And but yeah, and I think that's something that took time for me to fully just like dig in and and assert for myself. But I mean, the more and more as as things come up, and the more and things as as the conversations get deeper and richer, as I think. I think, and, that, and I think that that is with age that we we come into more of our, our, our more of our identity that we understand and that we can fully see ourselves as who we are. That we can start questioning some of those things that um, we were raised on, or even some of the things that our parents believe, because we can have separate mm-hmm. beliefs from our parents, um, which is something that I think all adoptees and their parents should have those conversations, even when they're younger as well. Because I want. I think part of me wonders just what would have happened if I was younger, if I was mm-hmm. 16 right now and like, and not raising a child, not, but like in this environment with my parents and how would that conversation look differently and how is it looking differently for other, like for our younger adoptees? Because I think that that's something that I'd be curious to kind of hear that conversation of just, they're still developing, but they're still there is the connection that's that's most definitely going to be happening during this time. I was going to ask you if you had any advice for fellow TREs, especially Black TRAs that are still living with their parents or, you know, in their teens or not, who are aware of these issues going on and want to have these conversations with their parents, but maybe they're too nervous or they're too hard. Uh, what is your advice for TRAs in that type of situation? So I guess my, my advice is, is kind of simple, <laughs> um, but it really is to start engaging, engaging with those hard conversations and challenging because um, it's really going to set a precedent for as you get older to be able to come back to these conversations. And if, if you don't feel comfortable, which I think that's something that I look back at my younger self and I don't know if I would would have been comfortable but I think the encouragement of other adoptees especially black black adoptees right now um should be encouraging that and should be another space I I do like I do know that we have some black adoptee TRA groups um that we openly have those conversations Mm -hmm. because I think we're doing a disservice for the next generation and the generations behind us that we continue to kind of uphold this, like until you get old enough is when, when you should be talking about until you're at this age, Mm -hmm. then you're going to understand this age. Cause if we look even at, at movements across, across races and across even LGBTQA, it's, it's youth, it's, it's teenagers, it's, it's young people that are leading these movements and with understanding that. And so understanding that their role of part of this is that they're living within this and they're going to see the changes hopefully they're going to see the changes that all the work that is starting to dismantle definitely not going quickly, but there are tons of movements that are starting to just, I think this, this has been an awakening, not that there hasn't been an awakening prior, but Mm -hmm. I think this, that we're seeing actual action behind policy. And so my advice to the young people is, is to listen is, is to also search out your own content and not the information that parents are always going to to do is that their first their first role is to protect you, and so I think that that is that's wholesome and that's great. But when it comes to this, um, I'm hoping that they're looking for diverse news sources, they're looking for diverse content, they're looking to to black reporters and and people on the ground and activists and organizers that are are able to clearly articulate because what we've been asking, what has been asked isn't new. It isn't something that's just popping up. It's been around the the platform to really change has always been said and visible, but now people are taking a listen. So, I mean, as at any age, we're still learning. I'm still learning. Um, so just continuing to be an avid learner of your own culture, um, but also just lean on the other adoptees that are that are present, that are active, because right now I can name about six different adoptees that I follow um, that are actively <laughs> communicating messages 
um, of social justice and change, um, but also voicing how that even mm-hmm. affects them as a TRA. So, so yeah, I hope that, I think that sums up my advice. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that was a great answer. And also I want to add that if you don't feel comfortable uh, expressing these views and these uh, entering into these conversations with your parents, but you still want to advocate for uh, Black Lives Matter or other uh, issues, um, including racial justice issues and everything, there's ways that you can do that online through social media. Um, If your parents are following you there, you can always, you know, uh, um, you can enter Facebook groups with other TRAs. um, And there's other, like just sharing links by TRA uh, black activists like I know uh, hey TRA is a great Instagram page and uh, and she always has great content that is educational but very honest and I think that's great for adoptive parents and adoptive kids um, of all ages Um, and just starting with every little thing that you can do to help counts don't discount your efforts just because they may seem small um compared to other people going to protests in person you know like not everybody can do that but as long as you're trying your best you should validate that as well and and we're learning i'm still learning and i'm 27 Uh, kylie said she's in her 30s and we're still trying to take this day by day and you're if you're still a kid you have a lot to learn and you will grow and you will be able to do more as you get older so don't be too hard on yourself so that's that would be my advice yes to all of that (laughs) (laughs) okay um i'm gonna switch it up a little bit um were you able to discuss your birth parents with your adoptive parents yes um yes so Early on, I mean, so for my adoption, it was a closed um, domestic adoption. And so um, part of, uh, this sounds weird, but part of my package um, came with like a brief kind of bio of both of my parents. Um, and and so routinely, like my mom would take that out, my dad would take it out, and we would kind of read through it. Um, but I want to say once it was 10, I got more specific questions of like, who are they? What do they do? And some of the questions, this packet of information was not enough. Um, My mom had started writing some letters back and forth through, through our agency to my birth mom. But I want to say the last letter I received was, I think when I turned 10. And so it's like, I got to read all of those, but it's still, there's still a lot of questions because I, Mm -hmm. it was like, I'm like, well, what about this? Like, I'm, I'm an artistic, I was an artistic kid and I was athletic. And so I was like, so who do I get that from? And how does this, do I look like either of them? And I had a, like a small picture of my birth mom holding me in the hospital. And as I look at it as an adult, I look like her twin, which is just kind of crazy. And just kind of like, it's, it's really interesting to kind of just see how, (laughs) how that played out. Um, But yeah, it, it became not tough conversations, but it was just like, I was always curious and it was kind of like, mm-hmm. so what do you like, not my parents like questioning, but kind of just like, so what do you want to do next with this? Like, do you want to seek, mm-hmm. seek out your, your birth parents? But it was, for me, it was more of like, I was seeking out my birth mom, my birth father, just kind of um, the relationship of the two was something that like, I, I just, I want, like, I was seeking my birth mom more than my birth dad, which I don't know if that's normal or not normal I don't know um but there was something that I just was fully just wanting that and desiring that but then it kind of fell off um when I turned mm-hmm. 18 because of my closed adoption I was able to then um petition my adoption agency for my um original birth certificate and I was like sweet like I'm gonna mm-hmm. like I knew her first <laughs> I was like I knew her first name <laughs> so I can actually like and it like and so it was kind of like this big kind of thing as I turned 18 it was like and now I can go find my birth mom and I like had this whole image of and fantasy of just like how beautiful this was going to be and it was going to be so easy I'd get get the record and then I'd be able to I think that's just when Facebook was starting to be like a thing that you search for people on and so I'm going to search I'm going to find her and then like we're going to have this amazing reunion and and yeah and it wasn't that um it wasn't even close to that um 
for me, my adoption agency closed um, sometime during my 18 years of life. And so that information was not there. So I actually had to go to Mm -hmm. the state of Texas. Um, So my adoption was through the state of Texas. So I had to go to the state of Texas, petition them to get my records. So eventually I got that. And that was well into like my freshman year of college now. And so Mm -hmm. at that point, I'm kind of getting frustrated with the process and like the conversations with my parents are getting kind of shorter. I'm just like, yeah, maybe it's just, it's not going to work out. Like I know she's out there, but, and so, and I think that was something that my, my, my parents really kind of pushed because they could see that that was something that I was desiring. That was something that I was like trying to figure out for myself. And, you know, you're coming into those college years where you're already exploring things and people and, and so it was like, this was that missing piece for me. Um, but yeah, it just, I think I set my mind on it, but I didn't like questions. And I think holidays, like Mother's Day and Father's Day was always hard for me because I, w- I would be constantly thinking about them when I, w- when I grew up and I would get irritated with like transitional years when there's, when they'd ask you like, what's your mom's name? I'm like, Julie, like, well, she doesn't look like you. And I'm like, well... That's because yeah. I'm adopted. And it just was like, oh, oh, so they they gave you up for this and and they, they got you and like you should feel so blessed. And it and mm-hmm. and you know, and so like those conversations about your family just kind of get like, well, yeah, but I lost a whole family. I lost a whole mm-hmm. two parents that created me and and I don't know what that relationship will ever be like with them because I didn't grow up with them and so like you go through that that grief process and like your parents don't they try to understand that and I think they're open to understanding it but at the end of the day it's like our parents and like most people like you're trying to solve the problem so it's like oh I'll give you more information to solve it but it's not information that you're needing it's that relationship that you're desiring and Mm -hmm. I think I had a hard time kind of just realizing like how much of an impact that that was on me growing up and even leading into like me having my son because my son was the first biological member of my family that has my genes that looks like me um, yeah, and stuff. So yeah, it, I don't know. I, I think, I think I struggled on both sides, but I think it was, there was, there was space to have the conversation, but I don't think I ever, I ever, I don't think I initiated it enough. Like, I think I found a place where I was just like, accepted I was adopted. And then it got to a point that enough of my friends knew. So I just stopped talking about it. Or, and like when, and they, and mm-hmm. I think I had placed up my walls high enough that it, it's like my friends didn't ask about it. So it's like, I didn't have to have an additional conversation. Like, well, what happened? your birth parents are like what like what do you think about them or what are they doing and I'm like I don't know and I just was always Mm -hmm. short with it so you you kept it kind of private Mm -hmm. and your parents they kind of followed what you wanted followed your lead with that yeah yeah they definitely followed my lead and they definitely I think my mom took on more of just that and she we had a conversation she she wanted to be very clear with me and made it very clear that she, not that she came to terms, but it was never something that she wanted to hold back from me. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, that was a good, that was a turning point in our relationship because it was like, not that we were like disagreeing or not that like it was upsetting, but there was, there was tension in our relationship. And I think part of that is that kind of that questioning of like, well, what, what would my birth mom would have done? Yeah. And I held that to her um, a lot, even though I may not have like verbalized that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think having that conversation of just like, no, I, like I'm, I'm here to, to, to not only like encourage you, but also like help you seek this out. And so when we did start kind of more actively searching for my birth mom, she was one of the first people to really kind of initiate the search and to kind of follow down the different routes and just like, okay, like let's, let's get this, this happening and let's get this to the next phase for you because that's something that you're, you've been desiring since you were a kid. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's complicated. <laughs> it, 
it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated so many like emotions. Yeah. And I, go along I'm glad it. you're sharing that with us because I think it's important for adoptive parents to to know that there's no cut and dry answers to adoption and reconnecting with birth family and sometimes like they can be like the movies and be absolutely wonderful, but they're all, everything's nuanced too in real life. So um I'm glad you shared that with us. Thank you. And uh, just just hearing how open your adoptive parents were, it, like, of course, no adoptive parent is perfect, but it sounds like your parents were pretty, pretty open that I, I want adoptive parents listening to also take note that you having some thoughts about your birth family is normal and having some mm-hmm. complicated emotions towards adoption is also normal and wondering what could mm-hmm. have been, what, what they're like, that these are all normal things. And no matter how perfect an adoptive family is as adoptees, it's natural for us to wonder and to, even get upset about these things sometimes uh like i know it's very emotional for me to think what could have happened if i grew up with my adoptive parents or even with my uh, my siblings i have two half siblings who are adopted into a different family um than i was so having these types of uh feelings and being able to talk about that with your adoptive parents is very important and uh i'm glad yours was really on board with taking your lead with that definitely yeah and and even I have I have two brothers that are adopted, one through foster care and one, um, well, I say foster because he came, we were a foster family for him first when he was about 14. And my other brother I grew up with and even in their own experiences with them seeking out biological families was a lot different. But just to see how my fam- how my parents adapted to kind of how each of us received received it differently was I think a blessing and I think that's something that adoption like across the board there's so many different experiences with with adoptees and their Mm -hmm. adoptive parents and not to take not to take away from anyone's experience but I think it also is just for like you said for the adoptee for adoptive parents that are listening it's like read your child but also understand that like it's not mm-hmm. personal, I guess. And I think that's something that I, I visibly got to see from my parents is that as hard as the feelings and as hard as some of the statements and things that I said towards them, they they chose to not take it personally. Like it still hurt, but they didn't show that like, they didn't lash out at me or say, well, you should be lucky yeah. because we're here. Um, and like, and using like that type of language, kind of reaffirming like that wanting and desiring a relationship with your biological parents and family um, was a negative or was like, you already have family. Like none of that was at their part of their language mm-hmm. that they use. And I, and I've, I'm, I think that that's something that I don't think they, they intentionally knew that they were doing that, but that was something that they, they did that like they, they did. And I'm like, looking back, I'm like, you never spoke poorly of the relationship and even like it was always an honest conversation even with like some of the history of my biological parents and like and some of that like and I've read posts where they're like the, the birth parent did this and da, da, da. and it's even publicly and to others like my parents never mm-hmm. had that language towards my biological family and that's not just mine that's my brothers and my other brothers and I think that's something that's a huge takeaway for any adoptive parent is to think of the language that you use towards your child's ad- biological family mm-hmm. and how you uphold that even in like your circles with your family, with your friends and how you talk about you adopted this child. Like there's private times and private conversations that keep that, but like there's so much more respect when you respect your child's beginning, their story and their, and, and their family. Definitely. Um, and you probably heard the the case with like the YouTuber Micah Stafer and how she yes. gave up her adopted child. Uh, how do you feel about influencers and like mom influencers that focus on adoption and as an adoptive parent? I think for me the hard part is is that because we are so socially active, like on the YouTube, on on Facebook, on social media, that like that has a lasting history. 
And I think about just what happens when the kids even 13 or 12 and they're looking up and like all of their wounds, all of like all of that, all their story, all of it's coming out, but it's not them telling it. And I think that that's something that there, I feel like there's still a way to share your, your story and journey as an adoptive parent without centering your child. And I think it's centering maybe the struggles that you have of raising your child versus like specific examples or really piecing together like, oh, and now we've gone on this like journey to, to their, their birth, their place of birth. And because I think it's so personal and I think, I think there comes an age and a time when you're, when they're going to have to grapple with asking their child's permission about the content they're Mm -hmm. sharing. But at that point, it's like, you've already made, essentially you're making money off of selling their story. And that just seems hurtful. And that seems just like they don't have any control or any say in that. And I think even with the more recent ones, it just, it's uncomfortable for me because it's, it's taken me time to develop my own, to, to be able to speak my own story of my, of my adoption and of me being an adoptee. And I just, I think if, if I would be able to look back or to, to see that it was broadcast everywhere, like I'd be upset because it's like, there's things that like, yes, I'm angry and yes, I'm grieving. And this is part of my adoption journey, but I don't need you to tell the whole world that because like, my child's always angry. My child's always having behavioral issues because of their adoption and because of this rejection wound that they have from this, like that, that's just not fair. And so watching, watching that, I just, it, it's very cringe worthy. And I'm just like, you're going to have a lot to answer for yeah. to your children, to your child. to, And like when they're in age, when they can fully watch this and be present and yeah, I don't know. I just, I don't, I like, I think it's the same with just like with adoptive parents that write books as well, but, and that's a different platform. So. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, there's been many, most of the adoption books out there are actually written by adoptive parents. And so that just, that kind of, I call it the toxic positivity in the adoptive community uh, because a lot of times uh, articles, videos, you know, news things are all coming from the perspective of adoptive parents and it tends to be purely positive and it can leave adoptees feeling um, really down or just angry that we can't express our opinions without being seen as the ungrateful, angry adoptee. Mm -hmm. And that's really challenging. And I feel like adoptive parents need to support more adult adoptees instead of speaking for their children. And I feel like that's the biggest way you can advocate for uh, adoption in general is by supporting adult adoptee voices because we've lived through it and we're all different. None of our, like, we all have different opinions on this, but uh, I think that's one thing that all of us in the adoption community can agree on is that adult adoptees understand adoption in a way that adopted parents will never. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's time that we really listen to these voices and which is another reason why I'm so grateful that you came on the podcast um, today. And just to, to kind of end up, end the segment, uh, I would like to know any advice that you have for prospective adoptive parents or current adoptive parents of transracial adoptees. And like, what do you wish that your parents would have known or what they have done better or anything like that? Definitely. Um, so I guess my advice first, just for prospective um, and current adoptee parents, is really to value, elevate, listen to the voices of adult adoptees um, and even teen adoptees that are sharing their narratives, sharing their stories, um, because we are the experts of our life. We are the experts of our experiences. Um, although every single adoptee has separate and different experience, we do have a tying um, identity around being a transracial adoptee. And that's something that should be honored and, and should be something that as you're seeking out adoption agencies and all that, you should be seeking out adult adoptees and sitting down and having those conversations face-to-face mm-hmm. or because of COVID, <laughs> Zoom, Zoom, Google, FaceTime, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> any of those platforms, because there's so many different platforms. And like, I think it's, 
when you say that you can't connect with one, there's so many and there's so many different resources to be able to connect with a, with a TRA. And to be honest, there's a lot of us that are very open to, to being in those spaces because we've experienced it. Um, I think that would be, that would be my biggest. And then just additionally is just adoptees are creating content, creating other things, give them credit for that um, and, Mm -hmm. and value and pay and compensation for the emotional labor that is going on, especially in some of like the Facebook groups, the Instagram pages and things like that is something that you should be contributing to as well. Um, And yeah, that, that's, that goes my advice is, we have, we each have our own story and our own voice. Um, and the more that you can hear from us, the better and take opportunity to just listen and actively listen. Um, and not just check it off. Cause I think that that's something that is easy to do. Like I checked off that I watched a podcast or I listened to podcasts or I watched YouTube of, of one of the adoptees speaking on something or I, I I've tuned into that, but really invest in that relationship, just like you invest in the relationship with with other components of your adoption. Yeah, definitely. I think that's great advice. And especially how uh, you mentioned valuing time and paying adoptees. Um, Don't ask adult adoptees or any adoptees to do your emotional labor for you. It can be very exhausting and traumatic to to relive some of the experiences that we've had to deal with uh, at a moment's notice. So don't privately DM or whatever unless like you ask in advance or you are contributing to. There's plenty of mentoring programs out there and Instagram pages and podcasts like these um, where adoptees are putting out free content that is available for you to listen to. So before you just you dm or message an adoptee just asking them every single question that you have consider and do your due diligence and research that on your own beforehand um just a pro tip there yes echo 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 yes 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 and my last piece is just for um transracial adoption is don't just be a fly on the wall in your your adoptees um culture and their race and their ethnicity really immerse, really be intentional with the relationships of the the people that you're surrounding your child with, but also your own friendships, because you're the first, that's the first relationship that they see is how you interact. And mm-hmm. if you're afraid of your child's race group or ethnicity or culture, um, that's, that's sending a message to your child. Um, yes. Whether you see it now, but it's, it's going to play out later. So really being open, really being intentional and really not, not just being an ally, but also understanding that you need to, to equally have your child immersed and not just plopped in, in in cultural events or plopped in when there's a big event or plopped in when it's just mm-hmm. an adoptee um, event, because that's also like, you're also helping to cultivate their racial identity as well. Definitely. I I think that's great advice. And just saying how intentional that you should be. I think that's, that's essential. Because if your adopted child is the first person of color that has a meaningful relationship to you in your life, that maybe you shouldn't have adopted a child of color so soon and you, sh- you had more work to do beforehand but it's never too late and if you are making efforts now just keep on working at it and keep on trying because in the long run your efforts are noticed my parents struggled with it in the beginning but they are doing a lot better now and i can't tell you how valuable that is to me that they're trying so um yeah Thank you so much, Kylie, for coming on Adoptee Thoughts today. I had a great time talking with you, and I hope you enjoy speaking with me. Yes, thank you. This was great. I'm so glad that you joined me today. And if you would like to hear more from Adoptee Thoughts, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you'd like to learn more about me, you can check out my website, adopteethoughts.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.